In the first 25 years of the 21st century, life changed dramatically. Automobiles, the airplane, radio, telephone, indoor plumbing, electricity. Can you imagine the excitement? So what have we gotten so far in the 21st century? iPhones, social media, and streaming services. I'm not certain life has improved much since the year 2000. In some ways, it's gotten demonstrably worse. Is social media really a good thing? Sometimes I wonder. Now, some of this thinking is the result of a new book out by my friend Chris Buzkirk. I met Chris at the Patriot Mobile office a couple of years ago, and I'm a big admirer of his publication, American Greatness. Chris Buzkirk is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, has written for the Washington Post, The Spectator, USA Today, The Hill, The New Criterion, and other publications. He's also a frequent contributor to Fox News, NPR's Morning Edition, and PBS NewsHour. What he has built at American Greatness may be his best work. American Greatness has terrific authors, including two we've recently featured in the economic war room, like Dr. Ted Malik and Dr. Mike Waller. The writing there is terrific. But it was Chris Buzkirk's new book that caught my attention. The title, America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in an Age of Decay. The main thesis is that nations that aren't advancing are declining, and the measure of advancement for America doesn't look very good. Whether you look at life expectancy, personal satisfaction, upward mobility, or middle-class income, the stats are actually alarming. That wasn't the case for this generation just before us. So I want to welcome Chris Buzkirk to the Economic War Room. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Your book is terrific. It's really thought-provoking. Um, I want you to, if you could, you know, I was born in the early 60s, 1961. I want you to contrast the last 60 years with the 60 years that happened prior to my birth. So 1900 to 1960 and then 1960 to present. Well, you sort of alluded to it, Kevin. Um, if you th you, the best way I think to maybe make this concrete for folks is you think about what the average American house looked like in at three points in time, 1900, 1960, and 2020, that would be 60 years gaps between either of those, or you could say 2023, same thing. You know, in 1900, there was no electrification. The America hadn't been electrified yet. You didn't have a refrigerator. You didn't have a car. You didn't have a television. You can think about um, 1900 as almost sort of a, a jumping off point between the time that was and the time that, that now is. And there were all these advances that then happened in the early 20th century. By uh, by 1960, the whole country effectively had been uh, electrified. I mean, you think about what it took to bring electricity to every house in this country by 1960. I mean, just a, a tremendous boom period. There was a car in every garage. There were televisions. There were radios. Uh, there was jet air travel by that time, just barely. Commercial jet air travel that age was about to kick off in 64, 65. Um, but it was, you know, quite a different world for the average person in 1960. You know, the suburbs had been built after World War II. It was just a very, very different world than those people who were buying houses in the 50s and 60s after the war. It was a really different world than the world that they had grown up with and a very different world than the world that their parents had grown up in. And you've kind of jumped forward now from 
the early 60s to the early 2020s, and you say, well, what, how, how have things changed in the last 60 years? And this is sort of a mark of the, the progress or lack of progress. And uh, we have electricity, and we have refrigerators, and we have TVs, uh, and we have cars in the garage. And, you know, things have changed um, over that 60 years for sure. The big change is that there are tablets, there are computers, cell phones, as you say, streaming services. That's a major change um, for good or ill. I think there's a bit of both. Um, but the, the only other difference is maybe there's two cars in the garage instead of one, but a car's a car. There's uh, maybe some more than one television, and it's a flat screen. It's not a big tube TV. Uh, and, you know, the refrigerator maybe is, I don't know, it's a double sub-zero instead of an old Westinghouse or something. But the point is, is, that, the, is that at the margin, there are have been improvements for sure. That You know, the refrigerators today are better, though they don't last as long as the ones that were made 60 years ago. Um but there's not the fundamental newness. Like there's not that fundamental new technology. There's that no is flying cars. There's or, no wow. There's you know. I watch 1923 yeah. and I watch 1883, and I see massive differences between 1883 and 1923. You know, the precursors to Yellowstone, and I see massive yeah. differences between 1923 and when I was a little kid. But I don't see massive differences other than the cell phone and, and you know, things have gotten smaller uh, and maybe more efficient in some ways. But in general, we, we don't have the Jetson lifestyle. We don't have the back to the future. We're supposed to have hoverboards, right? And we don't even have those. So, so I see your point. We have not had the innovation breakthroughs on the big scale that we used to have. God, you, I'm so glad you brought up 1923. So I, so I'm not a huge Yellowstone fan. Please don't stone me. But I love 1883 and 1923. It's kind of like that meme you see sometimes online, how it started and how it's going. And you know, there's a great scene in 1923 where they go into town. It's kind of what we're talking about. And there's a guy there selling washing machines in front of a store, and he explains how this is the way the washing machines were originally sold. They were sold as a rental. Um, and that, and the one of the cowboys, I can't remember which one it was. He kind of screws up his face as, after the guy explains to him, like, "Well, you know, we're, you know, we'll we'll give you this now, but then you pay us whatever five bucks a month forever." And he's like, "Well, if I do that, you know, yeah, I guess I'm save time, but then I work for you, right?" And I just thought that was like. You know, that was obviously a, a very intentional line in the movie, and, and it kind of points to what we're talking about. Like, people haven't advanced the technology very quickly, but what uh, where a lot of time and effort has gone in more than in the 20s is, like, how do you take the same technology and basically enslave people to it and make sure that you can milk money out of them forever? It's kind of like software as a service, right? Everything, it's like you used to be able to just go buy Microsoft Word. Now they want to sell it to you for 10 bucks a month. And it's not that it's gotten any better. It's just they figured out that they have a monopoly, and now you just become kind of a tax cow for them in just a way that you're working for Microsoft or you're working for these other companies. And that does not lead to better outcomes. It doesn't lead to better living standards. No, that's, that's the really financialization of society. I mean, it, it's the yeah. way we own things. It is also the World e Economic Forum's threat. They, they call it a promise, but it's really a threat. You will own nothing and be happy. They're not saying you won't have all these services. It's just you won't own them. You'll be enslaved to them. That's exactly the point. So, Chris, we're going to have to take a break. Uh, when we come back, let's talk about what made America great, what changed, and what we need to be doing now to take us back to the American greatness that we grew up with. 
we were talking with Chris Buskirk, and Chris, we're, we've been talking about uh, what made America great and the art of the possible, how can we get back there? But, but individual liberty, the entrepreneurial spirit, these are the things, it, it was a spirit that made America great, the spirit of liberty. Can you expound on that? Yeah, it, it was, you know, you think about the, the context here, you have these, um, you have settlers coming from Europe and, you know, Europe was, uh, was highly populated, highly regulated. It was hard to own property. Um, and so there was a natural sort of constraining function on the on the talent of the people. And so, you know, we had a very uh, industrious, uh, risk, uh, uh, risk-friendly group of people who came to the United States. Why? Because they wanted to make their lives better. They wanted to make their lives better for uh, their families. And, and, you know, I hasten to add, it was quite common, especially early, early in the founding era in the in the 17th century, it was pretty common for entire congregations to come. I mean, the Scrooby congregation is who the people we know as the pilgrims, they moved as an entire church congregation. They wanted to make their lives better for their friends, for their, for their church family as well. And those people came to the United States and uh, they had a tabula rasa. They had a clean slate. There's all this land. Uh, there's all these resources resources. Um, you know, and by the way, that sounds fantastic in one way, and it is. It's also terrifying because there was nothing there. They they just had to scratch a new civilization out of the dust of the ground, and they did. And it's one of the, you know, it's one of the most uh, awe-inspiring feats, I think, in human history. And people, you know, people had a can-do attitude. Like the, the job of America for 300 years uh, you know, I think about it from like basically 1607 until maybe the 1900-ish or, you know, 1907 or whatever, was conquering the continent and building a new nation. And people figured out how to do that. And what as, as a result of doing that, all of these different sort of innovations came, came around. It wasn't just we can build a new city. That's a huge undertaking. It was also we can build new technologies. Like we can, uh, you know, the, we think about the uh, the Wright brothers and their uh, bicycle shop, right? I mean, the prevailing sentiment at the time was that flight, of course, was impossible. Um, and they did it out of their little bicycle shop and, you know, having been mocked for even trying. And that was pretty, I mean, they're obviously, stand, they are obviously standout people, but that was, I think, a part of the American spirit. Risk-taking. We were risk takers and doing it for a reason, right? I mean, there's a re there's a concrete reason I'm going to make my life better or make my family's life better. I'm going to make my nation's life better. Uh, you know, I'm doing this. And for in many in many cases, I'm doing this because I'm going to use my time, talent and treasure to serve God. Um, and a lot of that has really changed. And part of that maybe is the closing the frontier and people don't know what to do next. I do think that's a part of it. Um, part of it is, is, is that, you know, the country's politics have quite honestly changed in a way that focuses people more on, say, political battles or cultural battles, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Uh, but it takes their time and their talents away from focusing on things that concretely uh, improve living standards, which I think is what we really need to refocus our efforts on. Yeah, no, in fact, uh, you think about that we were risk takers, now we're risk averse, and we're demanding that the government protect us from any risk, which is the whole COVID shutdown, the masks, everything. It's a perfect example of uh, a certain segment of the population demanding their government step in to protect us. And of course, to the government, that's an opportunity for power. And so absolutely, we'll fill that vacuum. Yeah, I mean, look, one of my main contentions um, in the, that I make in this 
book and that I that I think is true just in life in general is that excessive risk aversion actually heightens your risk. Right. You life is full of risk. If you try and protect yourself from any downside, you never accomplish anything. And, you know, sort of and you, you talked about it a little bit before there's there's only two uh, there's only two ways to go in life, up or down, forward or back. Like there's just no neutral. Right. So if we're growing, if we're not growing, we're necessarily are shrinking. If we're not, our country is not becoming more prosperous, we're going to become poorer. And it's a choice we have to make. And I think that, you know, behind some of this risk aversion, the excessive uh, risk aversion that I think has sort of overtaken a lot of the country is this thought that, that kind of like, you know, we're pretty wealthy. Things are going pretty good. Let's just pause. Let's hold it right here. And that's how civilizations decay and die. Yeah, and there's a question, and that's why I love the book, America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in an Age of Decay. You decay when you stop, and look, you can see, I, I read this in one night, marked it up, it's, it's highlighted red, green, orange, all throughout there, red pen, orange highlighter, green highlighter, and you know, it, it just really does sum up where we were and where we are and where we ought to go. So I, I, love, I love what you're talking about. We have run out of frontier, really? There's a whole, I mean, we drove from, I took my family from Dallas, Fort Worth to California. We drove across West Texas. I think there's plenty of frontier left. I think there's plenty of opportunity, whether it's space or terraforming the earth, which you talk about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there was, um, it was pretty obvious for, um, it was pretty obvious for prior generations of America what to do is just go west, young man, right? And uh, and we did. And you know, you think about the thirteen original colonies; they were they were really um, it was just this sort of thin strip along the Atlantic coast. And then we pushed west, and that started very early. We got to California in the middle of the nineteenth century, um, and, and I but I think that the promise of California really was not achieved until the sort of the early twentieth century. Maybe you kind of start to think about the beginning of that golden era in the eighteen nineties. You know, Stanford is. Uh, Stanford University is founded in the in the 1890s, um, but then it's but then Los Angeles, you know, one of the largest cities on the planet, one of the two largest cities in this country, uh, it doesn't actually solve its water problem until about 1930, right? And this is like this is a a watershed moment. Sorry, I couldn't resist. It's a watershed moment in the history of California and of the West because Calif because Los Angeles is in this very arid basin, but they figure out how to build canals and bring water down from the mountains. And then California just explodes, right? It explodes with growth. World War II, of course, you know, just puts that on steroids. And, you know, that was sort of the, you know, I, I argue this in the book. I said, like, that was sort of the apex of the American dream. It was like the California dreaming. It was the Beach Boys. And then, you know, it was, I talk about Doris Day and, you know, all these things that were happening in the 50s and 60s in California. Those big subdivisions are being built. And that was a good thing at the time because people could own their own houses. And then it sort of rolls over with the counterculture. And then you also start to see a lot of the decay and the decline uh, begin in California and infiltrate the rest of the country. Yeah, there's no question California was the American dream when I was growing up, but it, it now has become an American nightmare in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot of problems that they're experiencing in California that, that 
that we fear will be spreading to the rest of the country and already have. We're going to need to take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about what we can do in the future. And I also want to talk about the new California uh, movement that's just started there. Talking with Chris Buzzkirk, he's the author of America and the Art of the Possible. Now, Chris, there's some pretty dire statistics going on. You know, in, in the past, I guess, couple of decades in particular, we've seen lack of progress, and in a lot of ways, we've seen things get worse. I mean, the basic economic statistics look okay, but the wealth gap has increased. Uh, we, it's, we see a lot of just lethargy and, and people frustrated with the nation, and we've seen these cultural battles. And how do we get back to the America that once was the art of the possible? I mean, what well, you know, we need to innovate more, um, and that uh, and that's not as easy as it sounds, uh, as as it turns out. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who I would talk to and say, you know, we need to innovate more, and they'd fight me and say, no, Chris, I I think we need to innovate less. The question is, what's stopping us, right? And that's a fundamental question uh, that I try and uh, address in the book. I mean, the first half of the book, as you know, is sort of. Um, I always say it's like my litany of complaints. Um, you know, it's what's gone wrong. Uh, and I didn't want to stop there because I, because really I want the book to be a hopeful book because, you know, at a, at a very basic level, I believe in human agency and, you know, human responsibility. And we can do things. We can actually achieve a lot. But that means, number one, being honest about where we are and what's gone wrong, but not stopping there. Right. And that's just the predicate to constructive action. And so, you know, I looked at some of the things that had that had gone wrong. You you talk about the the wealth gap, and I spent quite a bit of time on this on this discussion because, you know, I was sort of conditioned to think like, oh, that's like a left wing talking point that actually doesn't exist, or it's you know they're blowing it out of proportion or whatever. Um, and actually, if you dig into the numbers, this uh, this actually has been going on, it's and right. it started in about 1970. The, like the wealth gap between rich and poor in this country has increased. Um, the, it, it was, and I guess maybe the best way to frame this or to, to, for people to, to understand this is that it was the case in this country that if you had minimal education, however that was defined in the past, you know, maybe it was only an eighth grade education or then it became sort of like a high school diploma or whatever. And you, uh, and you were willing to play by the rules and do your work, you could live a good life. Maybe not extraordinary, but you could live a solid, you know, what we would think of as the middle class uh, life. And you worked hard, you played by the rules and things. And send your kids to college who could then advance the next generation. So it was a that, generational improvement. No, that, yeah, that's exactly right. And what we've seen now is that the, it, like, incomes and household wealth have accelerated uh, and have grown quite rapidly at the very top. Right. So the top like one tenth of one percent has done extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily well. The top one percent has done quite, quite well, uh, but not as well as the top point one percent. And then the next nine percent has done better than everybody else, except for that one percent above them. When you look down, but you then you look at sort of the bottom half of the scale. Like this isn't just like the people at the bottom and they're doing everything wrong. This is like the bottom half of the country. Fifty percent of our fellow citizens. These people have not done well at all. Um, and, in and in fact, what's happened is that their incomes and their household wealth has either flatlined. Um, so while other people are getting wealthier, they haven't uh, moved at all or it's actually declined. And there's there's a problem there because there's a political problem there, by the way. 
one of the you know the the sort of predicate for this is that we haven't had the sort of technological advances that'll sort of pull everybody along with them, even sort of the maybe the least able or the least educated. They have a way to fit in. Um, and this this goes to what we were saying before about uh, about the the thing in 1923 where people spent a bunch of time figuring out how to extract money from people further down the income scale from them. It's like the rental of the washing machine. But that just moves wealth up. And that becomes a political problem because when you have extreme wealth gaps and you have extreme income gaps, guess what? You have a lot of people who are unhappy. You have a lot of people, especially in this country, where we're bred to believe in the American dream and we should believe in it. And then when it feels like a broken promise, you wind up getting Bernie Sanders. You wind up getting AOC. You wind up getting all of this tension in our politics because people feel like they're, they were betrayed. Yeah. And so what I propose in the book is let's start to figure out projects that we can work on as a country that actually will be national projects that will make everybody's lives better. Some more, some less, but everybody's moving in the same direction. I, I've got two thoughts on that. One of them is we mentioned in the last segment uh, the, the two Californias. There's a new California which is liberty-minded and their solution for things is to give us more liberty and opportunity. And the other California, the older California, is more government intrusion. So that's exemplified by San Francisco and Los Angeles. And the rest of California wants more liberty. So they want to go back to the American dream. But the second point I want to make is, uh, and I had this discussion earlier today, if you invested 20, 30 years ago in a startup Apple, in a startup Google, or, or even Facebook, you had the potential to earn a lot of money as an investor. So it was open opportunity. But more recently, the capital structure, the financialization of the entire economy has now gone against the individual. So if you wanted to buy one great innovation is Uber. In every sense, I believe Uber is superior to, to a taxi. You don't have to spend a million dollars to get a medallion. You, you, you know where you're going, you, you can prearrange your ride. You know who you're riding with, you know when they're picking you up, you know when they're dropping, you can share your everything about Uber and you don't even have to hand over cash. And yet, if you bought Uber on the initial public offering, all the cream was gone. It was taken by that top one-tenth of one percent who got in the private equity deal, but the financial markets excluded the average individual from participating. So we need the innovation, but we also need the opportunity to open it up for people to invest. Yeah, I mean, th this is exactly right. Now, the early investors in these companies, uh, they take a lot of risk, you know, and they, deserve, they do deserve uh, more reward. But to, but to your point, like, that's okay in theory, right? And it works, and that's fine. I mean, it, it doesn't work maybe as well as it once did. But how do you open up those opportunities more broadly? Right. That's really the question I think you're getting. And I think it's the right uh, I think it's the right question to be asking, because what's happened is that innovation ha has the way that we have structured things now, innovation of that type where you have Uber, or you have some of these other tech companies, you know, and not just so like software tech, but like biotech or whatever. That is a closed ecosystem where only the wealthiest people can participate, right? There's, and really the, the idea behind the stock market was sort of the democratization of capital. Everybody had a chance. And what you're getting at here, and I agree with, is that actually the stock market becomes a place 
uh, where the people who got in early are able to get liquidity for their investments. And this, again, it's a way to like, okay, we took the cream. Now you can have a little bit of the milk, but not too much. You don't get the best part. You just get a little bit of the stuff that's okay. And that's a, that's a, you know, solving the financialization problem is a, is a, is a big way uh, that I think we can start to move things forward again. Thank you. I think, Chris, you've given us some great ideas in your book. It's the art of the possible. It's the American dream. So I want to thank you so much for being part of the economic war room. You know, I learned a lot from Chris Buzkirk's book. It's, it's phenomenal. He talks about how innovation can help change the world. So you need to get a copy of this. Uh, go to a, follow Chris at AmericanGreatness.com and get a copy of America and the Art of the Possible Restoring National Vitality in an Age of Decay. Now, I'll summarize all this in the free economic battle plan at economicwarroom.com. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.